Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry right here on KOPN, your favorite community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri. Actually, it's the only community radio station in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, we've been here about 50 years. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, my name is Dick Dalton. I'm your host. And uh, each week on this show, we have the pleasure of talking to someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And today, my guest is from Fulton, Missouri, uh, Dr. James McRae, a professor of philosophy and religious studies and chair of the Department of Classics, Philosophy, and Religious Studies over at Westminster College. And we hadn't met before, but we're on Zoom right now and recording. So, hi, Jim. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's it's great. Uh, we've had a little dialogue uh, on email uh, prior to this. So, I know that you're an, an author. Uh, you're a musician, you're a teacher, you're a martial artist, you have lots of hats, and, you know, I'd like to talk about as much of that as we can today, just so folks can get to know you, and I can get to know you a little bit better. I have a couple of friends over at Westminster that uh, you know, uh, Brandon Bice and uh, uh, Rob Krause used to be over there until he uh, retired, and so I even got to speak over there one time for your democracy fall uh, big ah. thing that came Yeah, the in. symposium. The, the symposium. symposium, that's it. Yeah. We should have you back. Well, I, I guess I should. Uh, yeah, uh, Rob kind of set that up for me before. Uh, yeah, now that I have a book out, maybe I could do something. Indeed. Well, we'll talk about that after the show. <laughs> okay, well... Uh, where should we start? My goodness, uh, you, uh, I guess what is so interesting is that you are teaching about philosophy, comparative philosophy with uh, Asian studies, uh, Japan, etc. Um, you take in environment in your ethics studies, you bring in martial arts into your ethics um, you know i guess you probably even bring music in but we haven't uh, figured out how i haven't asked you about that yet so can you kind of tell us how it, you got interested in this stuff yeah well i got interested in music because i grew up in nashville tennessee and that's oh. kind of what you do there and although i'm not a country musician i mainly do jazz and progressive rock but uh i've played guitar and bass and been uh, you know singer ever since I was uh, I guess in junior high so uh, that's been one of my major interests I got into philosophy and martial arts about the same time I went to Furman University in Greenville South Carolina which is a small liberal arts college there a little bigger than Westminster and sophomore year I actually went in as a music theory major Oh. And kind of became a bit disillusioned with that because they have a great music program at Furman, but it's more classically oriented, which was not my interest. So even though they were very good, wasn't what I wanted to do necessarily. So I switched to psychology, actually. So I was a psych major and about sophomore year, I took a philosophy class just 
for a general education requirement. Mm -hmm. And at about the same time, some friends and I had rented the first couple Ultimate Fighting Championships from Blockbuster Video on VHS. It shows you how old <laughs> this, <laughs> VHS. I, I might be a, a VHS tape. And uh, I was blown away by Hoist Gracie and his ability to defeat these big, strong, highly trained martial artists using jujitsu, you know, without hurting them. He took them down and submitted them and didn't put a scratch on them. I said, man, I got to learn how to do that. And so I started training martial arts. And it was years before I actually found a Brazilian jujitsu instructor. But uh, my philosophy advisor, the guy who was going to become my philosophy advisor, David Shainer, was also the chair of the philosophy department and the head instructor of the South Carolina Key Society, which was an Aikido school. And he mm -hmm. ran our uh, Aikido club on campus. And so I started training with him and his wife, Ileana, was an instructor there. And his, his top student, Eric Carroll, was an instructor there. So I trained with them and I got interested in martial arts and philosophy about the same time. And uh, David Shainer is an expert in um, Asian and comparative philosophy and business ethics. He actually has spoken like you at our Westminster Symposium on his business ethics work. And so I got to go to Japan and train. I had a really good time. And uh, that led me to the study of Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's martial arts system. Hmm. And Lee was a philosophy major when he was at the University of Washington before his film career took off. So a lot of his writings are very, very philosophical. So I got interested in that and I started training with Jason Coral in South Carolina. And then in 1999, I went to Hawaii to do my master's and PhD in Asian and comparative philosophy at the University of Hawaii. So I started training out there with Burton Richardson, who's been my main instructor ever since. And uh, I was out there about seven years, moved back to Missouri to take the job or at uh, Westminster College. Mm -hmm. And I... Um, I guess about 2007 picked up judo as well. So, you know, these days COVID has messed our martial arts training up a little bit, but mm. we typically would teach martial arts classes at Westminster college. Uh, mm. So I would teach Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Jeet Kune Do and, and judo. And we're going to try to get that back in the spring. Um, in terms of philosophy, I uh, do kind of two things, Asian and comparative philosophy, which is philosophy where you study both, Western and non-Western traditions. So a lot of philosophy taught in the U.S. is more the Anglo-American and European traditions. Mm -hmm. Comparative philosophy means that you study world philosophies that are not part of those traditions. And it's nice because it forces you to critique your foundational assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, they, they think about things in different ways. But also it means that when you're engaged in law and policy and international diplomacy, you can engage other cultures from their frame of reference, which tends to be more persuasive. Mm. So, I mean, if you're talking with China, for example, about human rights issues, if you start quoting Enlightenment era <laughs> philosophers like John Locke, you're not going to get very far. Right. Uh, whereas if you uh, argue from a, from a Confucian background, you're probably going to make a lot more headway. Mm. So within Asian and comparative philosophy, I tend to do mainly East Asian stuff, uh, Japan in particular. And I do a lot of stuff in environmental ethics, which is a branch of ethics that deals with human beings obligations regarding the environment so how do we respond to climate change deal with pollution uh, deal with anthropogenic species extinction uh, appropriately manage natural resources for future generations these type of issues so how does the philosophy of impermanence fit in with being concerned about the environment 
Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. I was just talking about this in my Asian philosophy class the other day. So impermanence is an important idea in a lot of the Buddhist traditions, you know, and it, and it fits neatly with what physics tells us about reality, right? I mean, things are constantly changing. Uh, reality tends towards entropy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. order can be emergent from chaos, but oftentimes degenerate into chaos. And so our planet has been around for, you know, a little over 4 billion years. And it's over that time created these, what in environmental science, they refer to as like climax communities, you know, communities of organisms that functioned very well together and act as an energy circuit. So you know, sunlight is absorbed by producers. They're eaten by herbivores. They're eaten by carnivores. They die. There's decomposers. And so that energy is maintained in the circuit. And those species have evolved over millions of years to do this very, very efficiently. Mm -hmm. And human beings can change that so rapidly that evolution doesn't have an opportunity to replace species that have been lost with new species. Mm -hmm. So uh, naturally, if a new species comes along that's more adaptive to an environment, it's better at outcompeting other species. The old unadaptive species will die, the new one will come mm -hmm. along and, and replace it. Um, but what happens if we take out something like honeybees mm -hmm. and there's no replacement for the honeybees? And one out of every three bites of food that an American citizen puts in their mouth is pollinated by a honeybee. So if we lose those, we have a very big problem because we can't just genetically engineer some new ones to go out there. Right. right. So, I mean, there, we have to be acutely aware that all things are impermanence and thus all things are impermanent, I should say. And thus they require a certain amount of maintenance. It's just like your car or your home. You can't just buy a car or a house and then, you know, never maintain them. They'll fall apart. And the environment is is the same way because humans have to be cognizant that we can affect it so rapidly, faster than it can spring back on its own. We also have to realize that it requires a certain amount of maintenance. So we have to be good stewards of the environment and uh, be responsible so that we don't overtax it and damage it in such a way that it can't spring back. Mm -hmm. So is in ethics in that area, um, who determines what's good or bad is there some foundation for as a health teacher i would say well it's either healthy or unhealthy and we would sort of you know juggle that kind of uh, approach but in your ethics how because different people have different perspectives on what's good and bad right certainly so uh, within ethics it's a bit like physics. There's a search for a theory of everything, a unified field theory. Oh, okay. And, okay. and you have certain theories in physics that explain reality very well, but they don't necessarily play well with each other, right? Mm. So we've got electromagnetism, gravity, strong and weak nuclear force. And so if we try to explain how gravity works at the quantum level, it just completely falls apart. We, we don't have a theory yet that explains that. Maybe string theory will do that one day. So there's a search for the unified field theory, but in the meantime, we have to use the appropriate tool when we talk about the right thing. You use one theory to talk about stars and black holes and another one to talk about quarks. Mm -hmm. In ethics, we have four major theories. Mm -hmm. There's utilitarianism associated with people like John Stuart Mill and Peter Singer. And the idea here is that the right thing to do is what promotes the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm -hmm. And good is defined as happiness and well-being. Bad is its opposite, suffering. 
that's one moral theory. Uh, deontology is another. It says that the right thing to do is based upon using these universal moral laws. So if I think that I, it's okay for me to do something, I have to say, well, can I universalize that for everybody consistently so that we can all follow that same moral law? If I can, it's a good law. It's a good rule. If not, it's a problem. So if I'm thinking about lying, I have to say, well, what if everybody lied? Well, no one would trust anybody. Language would fall apart. I wouldn't even ask you what time it is because you'd be telling me a fib. Hmm. So I, I can't lie because then the world would be liars and my lie wouldn't work. Um, they also stress using people um, as, as ends and not means. So you respect another person as someone who has intrinsic value and you don't use them as raw material. Hmm. So that's another relevant it, theory. Is the golden rule fitting into that? Yes. Actually, if you if you read both Immanuel Kant, who's a famous deontologist, and John Stuart Mill, who's you know a famous utilitarian, both of them in their works will go through these detailed arguments and they'll say, oh, by the way, I just proved Jesus's golden rule. Like, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, it, it's this idea of reciprocity, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Mm -hmm. The silver rule is don't do unto others as you wouldn't have them do unto oh. you, right? So there's oh. kind of the, the negative version too. Right. But uh, So these are two major moral theories. You also have care ethics, which says that you should promote harmonious interpersonal relationships and um, also appropriately show compassion. And what's interesting is contemporary theories in neuroethics, which is an interdisciplinary branch that involves philosophy, neuroscience, law, psychology. And it looks at how the human brain is engaged in moral decision-making. Hmm. So if you look at the brain of a psychopath, there are structures in the midbrain called the amygdala. And they, hmm. these two little almond-sized structures that sit on the front of your hippocampi in the middle of your brain, and they allow you to experience fear and distress, not only for yourself, but also for others. So if I'm teaching class and someone walks in the room, starts waving a handgun around, my amygdala will send the signal to my adrenal gland, my adrenal glands, I will adrenalize, I will respond. Mm -hmm. But if one of my students is watching that class on Zoom and they see it, they'll have the same response in their brain. It, they're not in any danger, mm -hmm. but they have a compassion response for others. Mm. Well, it, it turns out um, psychological and or physiological abuse during childhood can reduce this production of acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that's necessary for the development of healthy amygdala. And if they don't develop properly, you can actually become a psychopath in, a, in adulthood, mm -hmm. which illustrates how important compassion is for moral decision making. If you so have those, no, uh, are those uh, adverse childhood events that you're referring to? The ACE, uh, I don't. That's a term we use in health mm -hmm. that, uh, that would say if you had too many ACEs, mm -hmm. then that would affect your. Uh, physiology, amygdala, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the more you have, the worse it's going to be. I mean, so you, you the brain's fairly resilient. So uh, you can have a few of those and be just fine. But people who are subjected to that on a daily basis, uh, it'll actually physically damage the development of their brain so that they can't do ethics as effectively when they get to be adults. Yeah. Now, they can still be utilitarians or deontologists they can think what's the greatest good for the greatest number and how can i treat people fairly but they won't have the compassion there so it's it's a bit like 
Uh, you know, like I wear reading glasses, so I have to have corrective vision when I read up close. Mm -hmm. um, and so I am essentially requiring some additional help for me to be able to see because my eyes aren't good anymore. Right. Uh, so similarly, somebody who has experienced this type of trauma and has difficulty with compassion might need rules and laws or um, some of the other moral systems to guide them ah. because they're, they're kind of sympathy impaired, so to speak, the way that I am slightly visually impaired. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the last major moral theory is virtue ethics, which is actually the oldest one. And this is what you see Aristotle and Plato talking about. And it goes all the way back to the Vedas in Indian philosophy in Asia. And it's interested in, you know, every practice that we're in has a goal. And you have to ask yourself, what is the goal of that practice? And if you get the goal right, then you'll get the practice right. So the goal of medicine is promoting the health and well-being of the patient. And if we direct all of our activities towards that, we'll be good doctors and nurses and biomedical ethicists. If we mess it up and say the goal of medicine is making money, then we, we screw up the practice. And right. so we have to ask what is the appropriate practice and what is the appropriate goal for that practice. And then the virtues are those habits of character that allow you to actualize those goals. And then vices are the habits, the bad habits that interfere with the actualization of those goals. And uh, you, there's all sorts of ways that you can cultivate these. And Aristotle has a complex framework for determining where the virtue is. But so these are your fa four major moral theories, right? Deontology, utilitarianism, care ethics, virtue ethics. And just like in physics, we don't have a unified field theory yet. We have to use these like tools in a toolbox. Mm -hmm. uh, my toolbox has a hammer and a saw and a tape measure and so on in it, right? And the hammer is really good for driving nails, but not so good at separating pieces of wood. I have to use mm -hmm. the saw for that. And so when I teach ethics, I tell students, you always want to bring all four major moral theories in mm -hmm. and ask yourself, okay, you know, am I being fair? What consequences is this leading to? Is this actualizing goals? What kind of person is this making me? Am I promoting harmonious interpersonal relationships? Am I showing compassion? Because uh, all of them have something relevant to say. We need to take a short break, but I'm going to come right back to those four, okay? Yes, I, I want to say uh, hi to folks listening today, wherever you happen to be in uh, that mode, uh, whether you're driving your car or you're at work or you're at home having supper. Uh, this is a a five to six in the afternoon on Monday show, and yet uh, we record it and we post it up uh, on our archives, so it's available for two weeks right there at kopn.org, or uh, you can go ahead and find me uh, there on uh, the program part of the menu, uh, Local News and Social Artistry, and you can see the last 25 shows there. And we even have another site that uh, you can find shows back uh, two or three, four years. So lots of ways to listen. And, you know, you may be in 2030 listening to this show. <laughs> well, I'm Dick Dalton. I'm the host of Global News and Social Artistry. We're glad you're with us. We're, we're glad you're supporting uh, KOPN, uh, your community radio station in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, we are in our new... Uh, facility out in the west side of Columbia, uh, getting it adjusted every day a little bit more. We've got some new staff, a new executive director. Uh, things are, are really looking up for 
uh, K-O-P-N, and uh, it's with your support that that's ever able to happen. So thank you so much. Uh, my guest today is Dr. James McRae, professor of uh, philosophy and religious studies over at uh, Westminster College in Fulton. Um, he said I can call him Jim, so we're on first name basis, you know, Dick and Jim. And <laughs> uh, Jim was just talking about these uh, four um, approaches to ethics, uh, and I won't go through them. I remember deontology, I think it was number two, and care was three, and virtue was four. What was number one? Utilitarianism. Uh, utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, they all had a Western ring to them. Mm -hmm. So how can they be universal if they're mostly coming out of this uh, European, Mediterranean uh, kind of... Uh, basis background well all of them have analogs in the the east as well oh. uh, vir and virtue ethics tends to be the predominant system in most asian uh, philosophical traditions so and i myself am a virtue ethicist uh, and i the reason i like it the most is i think it incorporates all of the other traditions as well so uh, justice is a virtue and so you get deontology as a central concern from that. You know, how can I be fair to others? How can I act in a way that I can universalize all of these principles for everyone? How, how can I promote justice, right? So justice is a virtue. Um, prudence is also a virtue. How can I maximize good consequences? I, I, I want to maximize happiness and minimize suffering, not just for myself, but for others. Uh, care is also a virtue or compassion. You know, I have to genuinely express my moral sentiment for others. I need to promote and maintain harmonious interpersonal relationships. But then all of this is under that umbrella of virtue. There's a certain type of person that I want to be. And I'm constantly trying to cultivate myself to become a better human being. I know this resonates with some of your own work. Uh, and I've been reading your book this weekend. So oh, cool. uh, there's uh, it, it, yeah, it's, very, it's very good. Uh, and, and so I want to be a certain type of person. And so I need to undergo a certain metacognitive analysis, which mm -hmm. is thinking about my own thinking, thinking right. about my own habits mm -hmm. and decide, is that who I want to be? Is that the kind of person that I want to not only live as, but also act as a moral exemplar for others as? I mean, so I have a 13 year old son, right? If anytime I display a moral vice, it's it's not just that I'm being vicious, I'm also teaching him to be vicious. Yes. So how old were you when you started your reflective looking at your beliefs, your questioning your own thinking? I went to a conservative religious private high school hmm. and we were not encouraged to do that <laughs> it's about the nicest way i can put it yeah. we had to take a uh, religion class and it was a good high school i got a good education there i really had a good time right so i, I don't mean to, to speak ill of it but like in our religion class i would ask questions about things and i was just told don't ask those questions that's that's forbidden you know, that's not appropriate. And then when I got to college, uh, I started taking a lot of religious studies classes and philosophy classes, psychology and other disciplines, and they would investigate the same issues, but they would encourage you to ask questions. Mm. So my religion teachers, even though many of them were Christian ministers, they would say, well, you know, why do we believe in God? What are God's attributes? What evidence do we have for the belief in God? And so I'm thinking, oh, wow, I can't answer that question. 
I don't I don't have a good answer for that question. And nowadays, if you know, my answer to that question is like, well, let's talk about St. Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for the existence of God. Right. I mean, now now we're cooking. Now we have something interesting to work with. Uh, and I know like my own ethical and political beliefs were very ignorant uh, because I didn't have any arguments to justify them. Mm-hmm. All I had was, you know, that's how I feel, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. So I had a wonderful experience in college because I, I realized that all of these critical issues, the nature of ultimate reality, what are the standards for truth? What kind of people should we be? What is right and wrong? What kind of political system should we set up? Uh, all of these could be answered in a very sophisticated way, but you had to have an evidence-based argument in order to do that. And so I reevaluated a lot of my own belief system when I was in college as a result of that. And um, to this day, like politically, I am totally unaffiliated with, with any party. Uh, and so when I teach my students, I try to stress the fact that I try to be a critical thinker, mm-hmm. right? So every election, I'm thinking about the candidates, I'm thinking about the issues, and I'm trying not to associate myself necessarily with a an ism, mm-hmm. right? You know, because mm-hmm. uh, as soon as you start saying I am defined by this point of view, it's it's potentially dangerous because you might shut down your critical thinking and say, well, these these beliefs are sacred, and I can't investigate those, and mm-hmm. I, I think that might be potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of uh, when I was in college, um, Martin Luther King was mm-hmm. um, kind of a prominent figure mm-hmm. in society. Vietnam War was going on. Uh, I had philosophy classes, but I never seemed to hear a connection between all of these old fogies, you know, back in Locke and <laughs> Aristotle and, oh, oh, Aristotle, sorry. Uh, yeah. And did Martin Luther King really think that he was doing deontology, uh, the virtue? I mean, did he, was that his language or he, he was doing something? Can you, can you bring that home in terms of a way in your classroom? How do you, bring that into everyday life well i mean king was a brilliant orator and one of the things that made him so good was that he could take very sophisticated ideas i mean he did have a phd right i mean so he was driven very much by this idea of liberation theology this Mm -hmm. idea that uh, religion is a transformative experience that is going to liberate you in kind of two senses, right? There's the liberal arts sense of liberation where it empowers you to be a better person. It gives you skills that allow you to be free in your life, right? But then also there's political liberation, this idea that it's going to um, make the world a better place, a, a place that is more just. King was channeling that. He was also a big fan of Gandhi. And, you know, Gandhi had yeah. this this philosophy of satyagraha or you know, nonviolent resistance. And so he... he was very well educated, I think, on the theoretical side of things. But as soon as you get up in front of the average American and start saying, well, let me talk about let me talk about Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. You know, a lot of people just kind of gloss glaze over and they're they're not very excited. So I I think he was translating that language into into Mm. a language that everybody could easily understand that would motivate people. And so I'm an ethicist. I mean, there's a lot of branches of philosophy, and I think ethics 
as one of the more useful ones and one of the ones that resonates with students. It's not mm. to say that the other ones are bad, but it has a clear practical value. Mm -hmm. So in my classes, we do lots and lots of case studies. So like my intro to ethics class, we'll look at an article on, um, say, abortion ethics mm -hmm. and uh, like, OK, here's what these theorists have to say about this. But now we're going to go and start looking at not only legal cases, but also the existing laws and trying to determine, OK, are these fair? How well do they fit the major moral theories? Do they need to change in certain ways? So I always want the students thinking about the implications for their own lives and their moral decision making and then also for law and policy because uh, it, it has to be practical and most of my students actually go on to law school hmm. so th they're very much thinking about like how can i take this into the real world so do you also look at different personal situations that a woman might find herself in because yes. each situation has a um, a perspective Absolutely. That, um, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of these case studies are um, actual testimonials from people who have been in particular situations and then trying to decide, you know, wh what do you do? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of complications. I teach biomedical ethics pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at these, this is another very case study driven class. So we'll do a book that's just on the theory and how you apply that theory on a day to day basis mm -hmm. for moral decision making because a hundred percent of large hospitals have some type of biomedical ethicist in them so any hospital with 200 or more beds has at least one ethicist typically a whole team smaller hospitals uh, i think it's about 80 percent or so have some form of ethicist so these are people who have to solve these problems on a daily basis so what do you do when um, so a mother has a severely compromised fetus uh, that's going to have extremely low quality of life. I mean, how, how do you make a decision about what is best for that mother? What is best for that fetus? Wouldn't abortion be appropriate in this situation because there is no quality of life? Or is it the kind of thing where the child might develop and have at least minimal quality of life? And so, I mean, the, these are the, the messy situations that mm -hmm. biomedical ethicists find themselves in. And things like withdrawing life support or care for people who might not be decisionally capacitated. In other words, they can't make informed, rational decisions about their own health care. Uh, maybe they've had a psychotic break. Maybe they, they're under the influence of drugs. Maybe they've had a head injury. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we look at lots and lots of cases that physicians have actually had to deal with mm -hmm. so that they can get used to making those decisions because mm -hmm. so, I've had a lot of students who've gone into clinical ethics as a career, and this is what they get to do for a living is look at all the really messy cases and, and mm -hmm. try to help the patient work through those. Mm -hmm. How is uh, how is science uh, in relationship to philosophy? Uh, because I, I encountered a number of students that really had a lot of uh, problems with science because they were raised up in a somewhat Christian orientation where there was a lot of doubts mm. put on science because of uh, evolution or whatever mm. it might have been. Uh, but it sounds like philosophy mm, is sort of a little different category there. Yeah, we have to 
we have to take science seriously because there's no better way of getting empirical evidence about the world. I mean, flat out, right? Okay. So we have to take it quite seriously. And I think, I mean, I do environmental ethics. So obviously we do a lot of work with science. Uh, the one tradition of environmental ethics is known as the land ethic. And it was originally developed by Aldo Leopold, who yeah. wrote a Sand County Almanac. Right. And uh, he is an environmental scientist. Mm -hmm. And it's been developed by uh, Baird Calicott, who was actually the guy who taught the world's first course on environmental philosophy. Uh, and uh, your co-editor uh, in publishing yes, books. I, I, I was very fortunate to do a couple of books with him. Uh, he mm -hmm. he kind of took me under his wing and, and worked with me. So I, I was really lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is an ethicist, um, but he grounds the entire land ethic in contemporary environmental science. Hmm. Because it has to be. Otherwise, how can you have an, I mean, how could you have an environmental ethic that ignored science? Yeah. Uh, and so I think even with religion, though, you can be religious in, in like the spiritual sense and be scientific. Uh, in, in Asia, for example, they didn't really distinguish between religion and philosophy until the early 20th century when they started studying Western thought and they realized, oh, they separate these into two different things. So in ja the Japanese language, for example, it wasn't until the Kyoto school came along that they said, we've got shugyo, which is religion. And then they made up a new word, tetsugaku, for philosophy. Oh. But, pri but prior to that, it was really thought to be the same thing. What's the nature of ultimate reality? How can I understand that? How can I live better in response to that? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's possible for someone to be spiritual, to be religious, and also be very scientifically minded. Mm -hmm. And so as a dual appointment, I'm a philosopher and also a religious studies professor, though most of my training was in philosophy. I try to stress when I teach religion classes that, you, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of science, right? It's, it, it's perfectly compatible mm -hmm. with a lot of these, these worldviews. My wife, who's a history professor at Westminster, and I co-authored an article a few years back for a book that Robert Arp did about uh, Thomas Aquinas and his arguments for the existence of God. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's an interesting book because Thomas Aquinas gives five arguments for God's existence. And so the book is alternating chapters of pro and con on each of those arguments. Oh, and so the first, so the first chapter is the one that Heather, my wife and I did, uh, and we're defending his prime mover argument for the existence of God. And she's a medieval historian. So she says, okay, in the context in which it was written in the middle ages, you know, was it a plausible argument? What was, what was St. Thomas really trying to do? And then I say, okay, and according to 21st century physics and cosmology, is it still a plausible argument? Mm. And we argue that it is so long as you take the conclusion to be appropriately weakened, right? Uh, and I mean, the, the gist is that everything's in motion and uh, we can see this in the 21st century. If you look at, uh, if you look at uh, through like the Hubble, or actually we have a better telescope now, yeah. but uh, we, in the 20th century, uh, Lemaitre and Hubble himself actually noticed that some galaxies seem to be moving away from one another. Mm -hmm. And you can they you can do this with red shift and blue shift. So um, it's, it's kind of like the Doppler effect. If you're sitting on the side of the highway and a car is moving towards you 
it sounds like it's really high pitched the engine. And as soon as it passes you, it sounds low pitched. Mm -hmm. And that's because the sound waves are getting squished as it moves towards you because of the velocity of the car. And that's what makes it high pitched. And mm. then it, as it moves past you, it stretches out the sound wave. So it immediately sounds lower pitched than it actually is. Whereas mm. if you were in the car, it would be medium pitched. And so galaxies do the same thing. Now, the galaxy is moving away from you. It stretches out the wavelength of light so it, it looks mm. red. And if it's moving towards you, it squishes the wavelength of light so it looks blue. And so Hubble originally noticed this. And then George Lemaitre later said, oh, maybe all the galaxies are moving from a central point. And at one time in the mm -hmm. past, they were all together and we got the Big Bang Theory. Right. And this is accepted pretty much universally by scientists about 13.9 billion years ago or so. The universe winked into existence from this singularity. Where did it come from? That's where all of the debate is right now. Mm -hmm. You know, right. steady state universe, vacuum fluctuation models. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, and so. And not just you know, where did it come from, but where did it come into? Yes. Yes. Because space. <laughs> was, there, was there a space here for it to come into? <laughs> and there wasn't. Uh, as far as we know, space, time, matter, energy, and probably even the laws of physics themselves winked into existence. <laughs> at that moment. And so, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas, were he around now, would look at that and say, oh, well, I mean, there has to be something that's not part of space and time, that's not made out of matter or energy, that's responsible for generating that. And, you know, call it what you will. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's the appropriate conclusion of that is like something generated that. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's plausible to to, you know, if you're someone who's religious, it's plausible to say, well, maybe that's consonant with what I understand to be God. Mm -hmm. uh, but note that that's a an argument that fits very well with contemporary cosmology. Mm -hmm. It's it's not something where you're just saying, well, I have faith in that and I'm I'm not mm -hmm. thinking about science. It's an attempt mm -hmm. to reconcile science and and uh, religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Vedas themselves, don't they mm. speak of a cycle that maybe that had happened before and before and before? They, yeah, they do. There are these cosmic cycles and uh, time kind of wraps around itself. And then each cycle, we're actually getting further and further uh, removed from the truth. So like the, the yugas, <laughs> they call them. Um, the, are, are these cycles. And then, you know, originally people knew the, the Dharma the the way the truth kind of your your sense of moral duty and then as you move through these cycles we get further and further away but then you you have certain leader certain uh, religious leaders usually it's gods manifesting in human form according to hinduism krishna who will come or, as yeah. exactly exactly krishna would be an example of that mm -hmm. uh, he was originally thought to be an avatar of vishnu like the, the king of the gods who comes and and helps us so that we don't all get horribly morally corrupt <laughs> But for, but for them, time is uh, more of a cyclical mm -hmm. process. Uh, but there are theories of the universe. I mean, there's one, the, the big crunch theory, the idea that, you know, there's a big bang, everything moves apart, right. but then eventually gravity calls it all to come back together and you have yeah. a big crunch. Mm -hmm. That one's actually been discredited because mm. th there's so much dark energy in the universe that it's causing everything to fly apart and it can't come back together. Oh, And, and also uh, every time the Every time a big bang happens, uh, you would have cosmic background radiation that's left over from the big bang that uh, essentially can't go back into the system. And you can see it uh, with, with certain telescopes. You can actually see the cosmic background radiation. So if it had been doing this forever, 
every time it went bang, there would be more background radiation. And eventually, like your cell phone, it would just run out of power and <laughs> wouldn't be able to do anything. So, yeah. but it is one theory. And, and yeah. I don't know that that one's been completely abandoned by physics. There's still people who are, who are interested in that one and working on it, though dark energy has, you know, largely squashed it. Mm -hmm. Well, let me take a, another short break and say, hi, folks. Uh, glad you're listening to KOPN today, 89.5 FM on your dial or streaming on uh, kopn.org. So uh, this is local news in social artistry. We get to talk to people who are building a more humane world from the inside out. I've uh, been going for oh, about five years, getting close. Uh, it's been a good run, and in that time period, uh, KOPN has moved into some new digs out on the west side of Columbia. Uh, we have a new executive director, uh, a new energy, it feels to me like. Uh, a lot of uh, new volunteers have come along, uh, good support from the community, and, and we appreciate your support for uh, your community radio station. So thanks for tuning in. and and uh, keeping up with our changes. And uh, by the way, if you have any suggestions for programming or you wanna be a programmer yourself, uh, hey, just call the station. Uh, we're open to, uh, oh, our topic today, change. <laughs> change is constant. So uh, we're, we're hopefully always uh, tweaking and doing a bit better uh, than we did before, so. Again, thanks for tuning in. My guest today uh, on local news is Dr. James McRae from Westminster College. He's professor of philosophy and religious studies, uh, chair of the department over there, uh, married to uh, Heather, who's uh, in the history department over there. So a nice family arrangement. Uh, I, I might say that we're on Zoom today and uh, this will air very soon. Um, so we get to see each other and, and uh, uh, I had not met uh, Jim before, so this is quite an exciting conversation. Uh, we're going to spend this last uh, uh, remaining oh, 17, 16 minutes or so uh, with a couple of things related a bit to martial arts and maybe music um, and philosophy. Uh, you mentioned uh, a little earlier in the show that... Uh, you were talking about the amygdala, mm -hmm. this uh, part of our brain that uh, has to do with fight or flight. Uh, isn't that part of where that all takes place yes. uh, in the uh, midbrain? Uh, so you mentioned that if a, a, somebody came in your classroom waving a gun, uh, it would trigger the amygdala and your adrenaline, uh, adrenaline would start getting pumped out because of the hypothalamus, blah, 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 blah and you would go to fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. But my question is, in martial arts, I used to watch Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think he would not have gone into fight or flight. I think he would have looked at that in a broader perspective and had some, oh, I don't know. <laughs> It would have been a different brain chemistry that would have mm -hmm. worked. And kind of what I'm going to lead into here is flow. And mm -hmm. so we, I know that you know all about flow. Uh, that's uh, 
how do you, can you, I'm going to say his name and then you correct me, okay? Uh, Molly Shishchik Molly. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been told it's Mihai Shikhsent Mihai. There but, you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, if I were running a spelling bee, I would definitely put him on there. It's it, it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, Mihai Shikhsent Mihai is a contemporary psychologist who develops this notion of flow states. And a flow state is optimal experience. It's where you're completely engrossed in an, act, in an activity and you are not distracted by anything and you're performing to the absolute best of your ability. So, you know, a football player who is in a flow state, uh, you know, running the ball down the field towards the end zone, it's almost like there's little yellow lines with arrows painted for exactly where he needs to go. And everyone's moving in slow motion. And, and it, it's like everything's absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. Or a virtuoso musician who's playing a solo live you know, they feel like they're completely one with the band and every note that they need to play is laid out before them, almost like they've practiced it a thousand times, even though it's improv. And, you know, the martial artist who's, who's uh, fighting against a fully resisting opponent feels like they are completely one with that opponent. They're moving in slow-mo. You can anticipate each move. And so, you know, that's the flow state. Mm -hmm. And Shikhsit Mihai argues that the more time we spend in flow states, the happier we're going to be. So he's got loads of books. I mean, flow is, you know, the, the big one, but he's got a, a lot of books on the subject. Mm -hmm. And he talks about it with like rock climbers and martial artists and musicians and all sorts of different people. He explicitly associates it with Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I've done some research. There's a Japanese philosopher uh, by the name of Takuan, Takuan Soho is his name, and he wrote a great book um, in the English translation is called The Unfettered Mind that William Scott Wilson did. And he was a Zen master. And if you've ever been to a Japanese restaurant and eaten those little yellow pickles, those are <laughs> Takuan Zuke. He invented those. Oh, so uh, <laughs> his other great contribution. Uh, but he was the advisor to Yagyumune Nori who was the uh, sword, the sword master to the shogun. So he's like the greatest sword fighter in the land. Ooh. And so Takuan was his Zen master. And so he wrote this book, The Unfettered Mind, to Yagyu, saying, here's how you can apply Zen principles in swordsmanship. And then Yagyu himself wrote a book called The Life-Giving Sword about how martial arts should be used to promote compassion and save lives rather than take them. Uh, and he actually had this whole style called the sword of no sword. I was just going to say that phrase. Yeah. Okay. That's his. Okay. That's his. Right. Okay. That's, that, that's Yagyu. Mm -hmm. He was so good at jujitsu. Jujitsu was originally this unarmed combat style practiced by the samurai designed to complement their battlefield weapon skills. So most of your empty hand fighting skills were, were jujitsu. He was so good at jujitsu when someone would attack him with a sword, he'd just take the sword away. <laughs> He, he never even drew his own sword. I'm not there yet. Maybe maybe in 20 years if I train really hard. But uh, and, and so if you're somebody like Yagyu, somebody you know pulls the sword on you, you just you just take it and set it down and say why why do you want to do something like that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a teachable moment. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, I, I've thankfully never had anyone pull a, a sword or a gun on me. But mm -hmm. I had a situation in 1999 where one of my neighbors in my uh, apartment complex, um, he was a paranoid schizophrenic who had stopped taking his medications. And so he'd had a psychotic break mm -hmm. and uh, he came after my wife one night and I got in between them mm -hmm. and um, he, you know, he was trying to punch me and kick me, gouge my eyes, bite, you know, every dirty trick in the book. 
fortunately, because I'd had a little bit of jujitsu and I was a white belt at the time, I wasn't very good, mm -hmm. but I was able to take him down, pin him, put him in a submission hold, get him to give up without putting a scratch on him. I went and talked to the judge, made sure that he got sent to the mental hospital so he could get the help that he needed. Um, I wasn't injured. Mm -hmm. So it was that type of situation where fortunately, because I'd had some training, I was able to neutralize him mm -hmm. without anyone getting hurt and bring a resolution to the situation that was as nonviolent as it reasonably could be. Could be, right. Mm -hmm. Whereas an AK-47 coming into your classroom, it's hard to get close enough to take it away and neutralize yes. the situation. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that that would be a, a different situation. I yeah. mean, now, granted, I mean, I I have trained in lots of gun disarms over the years, but you have to be close in order to get that kind yeah. of stuff to work. Right. And the reality is, as soon as a weapon comes into the fight, mm -hmm. uh, the stakes are so high that um, someone's probably going to get seriously injured. Mm -hmm. uh, my my only experience um, with someone, you know, pulling a knife on me, I happened to have a, a stick. <laughs> and so I pulled the stick and he decided he did he didn't want to, to go any further. And, and that was it. So there was no there was no fight. Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually on my way back from teaching a martial arts class. So I had my weapons, you know, with me. So I was mm -hmm. like, OK, well, you have a knife. I have a stick. That's the end of it. But I mean, had I been forced to use that stick? I, you know, the, the number one target in a weapons fight is your opponent's hand. Because mm. if you can hit that in Filipino martial arts, we call it defanging the snake. And right? a snake with no teeth is basically just an angry piece of rope. I mean, it's, it's not going to hurt you. So uh, I, obviously, if you can hit the hand and he mm -hmm. drops the weapon, then that might be the least violent end to the confrontation possible. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, regrettably, you're probably going to have to injure that person. Mm -hmm. On this flow... Um... There was a line that sort of stood out in some of one of the chapter that you sent me mm. um, that flow requires or is best described if there's a an organized goal, some a highly organized goal that you fit into. Flow connects to that. I, it's a little vague to me, and I. Mm. Does that ring any kind of a bell? Yeah, maximally ordered experience. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so Sheik Sent Me High says that normally when we experience the world, our mind's all over the place. In, in Buddhism, they call it monkey mind. You know, anyone who's done meditation, uh, yoga, that type of thing, mm -hmm. you sit down to meditate and you're thinking about your taxes and did I leave the, the iron on and, you know, all these distractions. Mm -hmm. oh. And so in a flow state, everything is maximally unified. So he calls it neg entropy, like negative entropy. It's the right. opposite of entropy. Everything is completely ordered. And the goal, he says, is to try to increase the number of flow states in your life until ideally you would experience everything as a flow state. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you see in both the, the yogic traditions and also in the Buddhist traditions, right? I mean, the reason that you meditate is you can take that calmness, centeredness, one-pointedness of consciousness out into the world. Mm -hmm. And so when you make coffee, you make it with a completely coordinated mind and body. Uh, when when you walk across the room, when you sweep the floor, you're doing that as a flow state. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then even mundane activities can be opportunities for self-cultivation and can be enjoyable. Like, like I hate mowing the lawn. Hmm. I, I, it's, I, I, just, I just view it as like a waste of my time. I'm thinking the whole time, like, what, what could I be doing? And so I have to try to turn it into a flow state. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So I try like, what is the most efficient way to mow the lawn possible? Mm-hmm. I want to mow this as well as I can in the fewest number of passes. And so it, it almost turns into like a martial arts kata or something as I'm mowing the lawn. And by doing that, it actually makes the lawn mowing enjoyable and it's done before I know it. I mean, I have to do that this afternoon. So <laughs> I'm gearing up to well, try to make it a flow state. As you're doing that, I want you to think about the Japanese environmental philosophy mm-hmm of not having all that grass there that you water and it grows and then you cut it and you water and it grows and you cut it, which is a waste of everything. Yes. Why not turn it into a nice Japanese garden? <laughs> I've, I've, I have to be careful because I have a neighborhood association. Um, so, oh, <laughs> but but yeah. we're actually in the process of kind of zero scaping part of our front yard to make it into a, almost like a dry landscape garden. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm I'm with you. I I think that <laughs> we it's particularly bad in desert areas. You know, when you see like very dry climates and people mm-hmm. have these well manicured lawns there. Uh. It, 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 yeah, it's 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 silly from an environmental perspective, but yeah, I'm required by my neighborhood association to have a certain amount of lawn and a certain number of trees, uh, and mm. so. But maybe I can change that. They won't let me put solar panels on my roof either. Uh, I'm oh trying my. to I'm trying to change that too. Yeah. Well, uh, best of luck to you. I really. Just, <laughs> I mean, that association sounds a little bit like it needs some uh, mm, inspiration. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's it, rules get made and then the, the, uh, the environment changes a bit. Right. And so I mm-hmm. think a lot of these are just holdovers from old rules and, you know, they're, they're good people on my neighborhood association. So I'm sure they'll, <laughs> they'll be open to persuasion. Oh, good. Well, we have maybe five minutes left and I have a, a few things that you can pick from. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, uh, C.W. Dawson, Two, yeah. uh, Apple Teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, Fukushima. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, uh, is Suzuki a Japanese uh, teacher? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Suzuki piano teaching method that people seem to rave about. I don't know if you know anything. Oh, about that that, that uh, yes, that that is Suzuki's kind of like Smith over there. So there's a lot of Suzuki's. Oh, but uh-huh. okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. But um, and then your music. Uh, mm-hmm a lot of options for just a few minutes so yes what what uh, would you like to sort of come out with yeah well i mean you mentioned my colleague cw dawson uh he's he's a great guy uh, you know dynamic speaker you know he's, he's just a wonderful guy very very well educated right i mean he's got a mdiv from princeton theological seminary and a phd from mizzou and so he He's been teaching for us for a few years at Westminster, and and he I recommended used... you, by the way. Yes, yes, yeah. I he I, I I I enjoyed your interview with him uh, a few weeks back, I guess uh, several weeks back. But he, uh, yeah, his his book, uh, La Conversation Fracturée, like the fraction got fractured conversation. I use uh-huh. it in my uh, my philosophy of race and gender class. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. yeah. Next time that comes around, I'll probably actually have him teach that class. We did it as an experimental class because it's, you know, important to discuss those issues. Yeah. So I taught it for the first time just because it no one had taught it before. But honestly, if he's interested, I'll probably just have him teach it next time because he's more qualified than I am. <laughs> Great. But yeah. Cool. But yeah. He's cool. an he's an amazing guy. 
And uh, what was the second one on your list? I'm, uh, I'm Apple blanking. Teacher. You have listed. Oh yeah. What's Apple Teacher? So uh, Apple Teacher is a certification you can get from Apple computers to mm. teach how to use their devices. Mm -hmm. And so I'm certified to teach the iPad. And uh, my colleague, Barry Bumgarner in education, who joined us a number of years back, is a technology guru. And so she pioneered our Digital Blue program. So we went one-to-one -one with iPads and have been that way for a number of years. So yeah. every student gets an iPad at Westminster College and uh, all the faculty and staff have them too. So we use them in class. Awesome. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's really nice. And it helped us weather the storm with COVID, too, because mm -hmm. we said, oh, we need to go offline. No worries. Everyone has Everyone's an iPad. Good. That's so, right. That's yeah, right. It, worked. it uh, was great. I just got mine recently. First oh, yeah? time. Yeah. Learning the, the ropes with uh, Tom Piper over here, our Apple guru in Jeff City. Yeah, it's it's great, especially, you know, you start messing around with GarageBand in there, like the touch instruments. It's so much fun as kind of a musical sketch pad to play around on that. I saw and that then, on there. I, I haven't played with it yet. It is a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it is a lot. It's very powerful. I mean, I think about, you know, when I was a musician back in the, the 90s, you had these crummy little four track and eight track cassette mm -hmm. recorders, mm -hmm. and it was such a pain to record anything or mix anything down. And we had to go in the studio and pay thousands of dollars just to get a demo yeah. tape recorded. And yeah. nowadays you can you can do the entire thing in your living room if you want. There you go. Well, I don't think we have time for Fukushima, probably. Oh yeah. Or the Chinese uh US cooperation and mm -hmm. you know, there's so many maybe we'll do a redo here one of these days and, and Sounds get good. into some more stuff. This is uh I think worthy of uh Broadcast conversation, truly, truly. Uh, Thank we, you. We actually have about 30 seconds. You want to take us out, and I'll do my little close after that. Well, thank seconds. you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. This is uh, Dr. James McRae, a professor over at Westminster College in philosophy and religious studies. And uh, thank you, friends. Uh, Remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.